I'm Ken Hertz. I live in Los Angeles, and I am very excited to be on the Touch of Truth podcast with my dear friend, Jackie Cooper. Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper, the Senior Advisor and Chief Brand Officer at Edelman. With over 35 years of business experience in brand, creative, and personalized strategy. On Touch of Truth, you'll find wisdom from some of the most respected, trusted, and successful people on the planet. And it might just make you a little more successful and a lot happier. So it is a pleasure and a joy to be sitting with Mr. Ken Hertz in real life for our Touch of Truth podcast. And it's kind of hard to know how to introduce you to the world because you are literally a strategic, brilliant polymath. You're a lawyer. You do deals like no one else. You're a connector like no one else. You like to think that you're really tough, but you're actually extremely kind and have given me some of the best experiences and best people that I've ever met in my life. And you also advise on marketing and brand strategy. So you're kind of busy. Yes. I'm very, very busy. Far too busy to be just appearing on just any podcast. <laughs> and I'm very flattered that you invited me to come. That's nice. Your life, you deal with people who do make money because you represent, I'm going to leave it to you to mention names rather than mention names, but you work with A-list celebrities in music, in film, big deals, big money, big cultural Sometimes. impact. Sometimes. Yeah, and you support, and little and, ones. And you support the small ones, yeah. yeah. We, 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 and you are no, no, I'm very, I've been very fortunate. I've gotten very, I really have gotten very lucky. You know, I've gotten into business with people very early on in their careers who you know, more often than than one would have expected, turned out to have much bigger careers. And so so I've I've I grew up and learned by doing, you know, with clients who thankfully stuck with me and and thankfully did better. Hello, honesty. How are you right now? At this time, in this place, in your life business, and personal. So, Ken, this is the part of the podcast where many people say, how are you? But this is how are you really? How are you properly at this time, in this place? How are you? How am I today? How do I feel in general? What are you asking me? In this time, in this place and, now. And safe. I'm, I'm fine. So I'm... I'm in a general state of of complacency at the moment. I'm I'm fine. You know, I'm neither anxious nor depressed, pessimistic, optimistic. I'm I'm even keeled. Is even keeled unusual? For me? Yeah, I'm usually I'm usually, you know, I've usually got very ambitious plans and I'm always and I'm confident that that they'll you know that they'll come together, and 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 I just feel, you know, frankly, I, I feel as though um, the world is more volatile than ever, and that people are more anxious than ever. And since I was a worrywart, you know, and and a doomsday prepper before it was fashionable, I'm now sort of at a I told you so kind of mood. So I'm neither pessimistic or op nor optimistic. I'm just kind of right here and relieved to know that I that I may have been right. 
The thing is, you're often right and you're often ahead of the curve. I'm... Well, my father used to say, often wrong, never in doubt. Okay, that's a good mantra to live by. But you're American, even though you work in global business. How is it being American right now? It's, it's, it's difficult. Um, you know, we're in this moment in time where, and I say this to everyone, so those of you who've, anyone who's tuning in that actually knows me, forgive me for saying this, uh, and I've said it to you, I think that we live in a world now where not getting caught in a lie is the same as telling the truth. And I find that very disturbing. Um, I also think, um, and this is very American, that Americans in general and the rest of the world is catching up in this regard, unfortunately. Americans believe that if you're getting away with it, you're not doing anything wrong. I don't think everyone believes that. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not accusing everyone of having that attitude, but most people know that that's not true, right? But they look around and they see others being rewarded for behaving badly and that there are no ramifications, right? There are no, there's no accountability, right? And it makes people feel stupid and naive and, and that's kind of crashing down on all of us. You know, I don't want to turn this into a morbid, you know, podcast, but I'm, I, I do think that it is really troubling that we may, it's like climate change, right? Uh, you know, it may be too late. We don't know. Hmm. Right. But it may be too late. And it feels like that same it may be too late applies to not just climate change. It hmm. may apply to democracy. It may apply to, you know, public safety. It may apply to to everything. It may be too late to raise your children with the confidence that they'll want to have children. Like it's a really hard thing if your kids are going to inherit a world that isn't as good as the world that you came into in many ways, right? And going backwards in stuff and well, feeling threatened or not knowing that tomorrow is going to be okay. So do you feel like hopeful about that next generation? Like we have grown up daughters, both of our families. Our daughters are, thank God, smart and hopefully contributing to a better world. Are you generally optimistic about... I don't know that our What's children. I don't know that our children are any smarter than anyone else's children. Of course but they our are. Children, but our children, <laughs> but yours are. But our children, <laughs> our children grew up with with our knowledge that they would get a decent education. Not everyone can be assured that that if they have to access public education, that public education is nearly as good as it once was promised to be. And and the reason for that is that. No one wants to pay their fair share because they don't believe that everyone else is paying their fair share. And as soon as that system breaks down, no one wants to pay for your kids to go to school. No one wants to pay for you to go to the hospital, right? But everybody wants to be able to pick up the phone no matter who they are. And no matter how rich they are, no matter how poor they are, they want to be able to pick up the phone and, and get the fire department or the police to respond and not ask them if they have insurance and not ask them, you know, you know, where they live, what their zip code is, other than to, to locate them, right? right? So, you know, the, the, the challenge now is that once that system, that sort of generalized mutual trust breaks down, where no one feel, you know, the libertarians who started America believed, I, I think, they believed that you should be free to do anything you want, so long as you're not hurting anyone. 
right? These were immigrants from Europe, primarily, who came here, came to the States, rather, um, with the idea that they wanted to escape monarchy. They wanted to escape totalitarianism. They wanted to escape the domination of the church, right? And they wanted to create, they had a vision to create, uh, you know, something that had never been done before, right? A country that was actually based on an idea, right? Um, every other country in the world was the result of someone pointing a sword at someone, essentially, right? Or moving into a place that had not been occupied before and no one had claim to. So somebody laid claim to the land and that became a country. But America was the first country ever to be started based on just an idea, right? And that same idea was the basis of the French Revolution, but that idea has been so badly contorted that it no longer means anything to anyone other than, you know, academics, right? The, you know, the, the, the narrative has been modified by, by an unbridled capitalism. So now what it means is freedom to do anything so long as you're not hurting anyone. Well, not hurting anyone means the freedom to be greedy, the freedom to be selfish, the freedom to be an asshole, the freedom to, no, the freedom to get away with something, right? Anything, right? In popular culture, we we honor those people, right? In other words, we, we treat people who have figured out how to beat the system like heroes, like they're not hurting anyone. They're picking your pocket and mine. It's funny, you know, I work in the entertainment industry and oftentimes you will audit. Your, your clients are royalty participants, for example, and you will audit a label, a record label or a film company or a television company, you know, merchandising company. And, but it's true in every industry that has participants, right? Where you, you have the right to audit them in some limited fashion and you go in and you audit them and surprise, surprise, the audit never, as far as my experience has gone, it never reveals a mistake in your client's favor. It invariably reflects a mistake on the royalty payer's part and ha that your client has somehow been underpaid, right? And so then you, and it can be millions of dollars, right? The really, the, the people that can afford to audit are the ones who made lots of money. So the recovery can be a, you know, if, even if it's a small percentage, it'd be a lot of money. And you go in and you say, looks like you didn't pay us, right? And their response is never, oh my God, how did we miss that? Thank you so much for pointing it out. <laughs> Checks in the mail, right? The, the response is always, all right, well, why don't we give you 30 cents on the dollar and call it a day? The analogy I like to use is, you know, you, you pay for your dry cleaning when you drop it off and then you come back and they only offer you half your clothes, <laughs> right? Right. And their rationale is, well, what do you want to do? Sue us? But that has nothing to do with the discussion, right? And if a young black man walked into a 7-Eleven and took $20 out of the cash register, he would certainly, if he didn't get shot, he would certainly go to jail. But if a executive at a company steals money from a young black man who is an actor or a recording artist, right? And it is theft. I mean, underpaying intentionally is theft. And somehow I have to conclude based on the results of the audits, I have to conclude that it doesn't happen by accident, right? It is somehow institutionalized. And by the way, I don't think that the people that work at these companies are bad. Don't misunderstand me. I think that uh, an institutionalized vagueness in the language, which allows the accountants to interpret the language in a self-serving way. And until you bring it to their attention and then debate what the language obviously means or should obviously mean, you know, there's no 
recovery. It's just fascinating, isn't it? Like what's worth paying for? Like what people have in their mind about what's pay, worth paying for, that somehow it's okay not to pay for that. And I didn't even know that went on until I met you, by the way, about the auditing thing, because I wasn't aware. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, I apologize because it, it sounds like I'm cat, like I'm painting the entire industry and, and every industry with the same brush. I, I don't mean to. What I'm saying, what I'm really trying to emphasize is that, you know, money is so important, right? Wealth has become so important um, as a measure of success and as a measure of status and everything else that, and there's this perception that everybody else is getting rich and you're not and that they must be doing something that you're not doing, or you must be missing out, or you must not be, right? And so what's happened is people are in, are basically honest. I believe that. I believe that people are basically honest. But basically honest means basically dishonest in a way, right? Because it means that they don't lie unless there's enough at stake. And increasingly, that thing that they're lying about is money, right? Or the goal is to keep more, make more, you know, get more, whatever it is. But But... I do think that that there's sort of a, coll a collective acceptance of the idea that if you are making enough money, that it's okay to fudge the truth. It's okay to to toe the line. It's okay to to it's okay to cheat a little bit. The truth test. A few questions on truth from a self, human, and brand perspective. First question for you is, what is the biggest gamble you've ever taken? Ooh, what's the biggest gamble? In your life, what is the biggest gamble you've ever taken? And the answer to your question is, I left Disney. Ah. Oh. I left Disney. That was the greatest risk I ever took. I was up for a job working directly for Michael Eisner, and I was well into the process, and, he'd, and I'd become very much, I'd, I'd spent a good deal of time with him, and I'd become very much you know, sort of inspired by his sort of childlike fascination with things. I mean, it's a, the idea that a grown-up could could have maintained their sort of sense of wonder the way he had and his sense of excitement, okay. sense of excitement over new stuff. And, you know, I sent him a project one time and he, he, he called me and gave me like a really thoughtful review and he was excited about it in a way. And there was nothing, there was nothing financially attractive about it. He was just excited because he was so happy that I had sent it to him, you know, and and I really loved and admired that. And my wife got pregnant and I was at the end of my contract and this was going to be my next chapter. And I realized that if I did work for Michael, that I would be living on an airplane three or four days a week because the job was a job that that required you to kind of be, a, it was a kind of a chief of stuff <laughs> job, which is, that's a term Michael Casson taught me. I but, love that phrase. Yeah, it was like, if there was a problem at Tokyo Disney, then I might have had to go to Tokyo and live in a hotel room and try to figure out what was wrong, right? So it was really, it, was, it, was, it would have been an ideal job for me, right? Because I, I'm sort of, as my wife likes to say, five miles wide and half an inch deep. I know a little <laughs> bit about everything, but I don't really know much about any particular thing. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a good problem solver. So, you know, that would have been a great job for me. And my wife got pregnant with our second, and I just didn't want to be or continue to be the dad that never shows up. So I quit, and I took a job as a partner at a small law firm that represented Strictly Talent, as I mentioned. They didn't pay me anything, right? We started to talk about, like, but the Writers Guild strike was on, and so they were a little bit worried about money. 
And they wanted to start a music practice because they felt that was a good way to diversify because they'd seen how complimentary that can be. And they cut me a deal. It was They gave me an office and they gave me a secretary and they gave me a parking space and they <laughs> gave me a, an allowance to, you know, to entertain. Fortunately, having left Disney and having gotten there at the time I did and having left at the time I did, I had money in the bank. And um, I was able to take a job like that where I didn't have a guarantee, but I also could eat what I killed. And I got very lucky. I never, ever did anything I planned to do. I didn't know where I was going to go to college. I ended up choosing the college that I went to because it was such a bargain. And my parents were in the midst of a very expensive divorce and then didn't have any money. And my father was Air Force. He worked at NASA. And then uh, we moved to Los Angeles, you know, basically when it was clear that after they landed on the moon, there wouldn't be a, you know, a big budget. And so um, we moved from Houston, Texas to Los Angeles in the late 60s. And my life became weird because we had no money, but we lived amongst people that did. And they were, everyone identified themselves by their relationship to the entertainment industry. And my parents were very much not in the entertainment industry, you know. And so I was like a kid with my face pressed up against the window of the candy store with a crew cut and a Texas accent. When, when the teacher would call on you in class and I would say, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, everybody in the class would turn around and look at me like I had three heads, Wow. you know. So I had to very quickly learn how not to have a Texas accent and I had to very you know, as quickly as possible, let my hair grow, you know, and, uh, you know, and try to be, try to fit in. You know, I lived in the, in the boonies, you know, out near NASA in, in Houston. I grew up in a place where, you know, you got up in the morning, you got on your bicycle and you didn't come home until dinner time, and nobody was looking for you because everybody knew, knew everybody, right? I came to a city like Los Angeles where everybody had a car, you had to drive everywhere, you know, it was just a different and so because my parents were always fighting over money, I had a job from the time I was 12 years old and was convinced that I was the part of the problem. And so I developed a skill at, uh, you know, at making myself not the problem. I went to a public university because if you lived in California at that time, uh, it cost, and I'm not joking, it cost about $740 a year to go to Berkeley. And so I went to Berkeley because, you know, how, you know, my, my dad's attitude was, uh, you can go here and it's basically free, or you can go to a private college, try to try to qualify for financial aid, but I'm not filling out a financial aid application. That's why I went to Berkeley. And then I got to Berkeley and I thought I was going to be an electrical engineer. And then I thought I was going to be a photographer. And then I went to business school and then I went to law school because, it was really cheap to go to great universities. If you could get in, it was it was very inexpensive to go to public university. So I sort of figured I could stay in school because I could earn enough to pay my own tuition. I didn't need my parents for, to give me any money, so they didn't have to fight over me. Parents got divorced, as I said, you know, when I was applying to college, and that was pretty much it. I was on my own, and so I didn't know what I wanted to do. When I graduated from college, I worked for my uncle on cruise ships. He had the casino concession on twenty-seven cruise ships. He had invented the onboard casino. He had the, yeah, he had the exclusive high seas distributorship for Bally slot machines. And at that time, Bally slot machines, which was a mechanical slot machine, they had 90% of the business. They were out of Chicago. And if you wanted to have a casino, you had to make a deal with Bally. You had to buy your slot machines from Bally. And so he cut it, he made a deal with them to be their exclusive high seas distributorship. And I'm sure they said, I have no idea what that means, but no problem. Right. 
And then he put casinos, he partnered with all the cruise lines and put casinos on the ships. It was a big cash cow for them, big cash cow for him. It also at that time was essentially a tax-free income because he was able to never land the money, right? The ships were in international waters, the money was, was earned, and then his nephew, in my case, or his sons in other ships or their friends or whatever, they would put the cash in a bag, get off the <laughs> ship in the Cayman Islands or wherever, and deposit the money in cash into an offshore bank account. And as long as they didn't land the money at that time, you know, at that time you didn't pay you didn't pay taxes in the U.S. You didn't pay taxes on your worldwide income. You paid taxes on whatever landed in the U.S. And so that money would sit offshore, and then he would buy. He owned a refrigerated cargo vessel. He owned a light oil tanker. You know, he's like, this is my my mother's brother. He was a very successful guy. And he gave me a job in the summertime working on cruise ships. I had no, I, I was qualified to do anything, but I wasn't qualified, I wasn't really qualified to do anything, right? I didn't have, you know, any specific skills and almost no real work experience except working in a casino on a cruise ship. And I don't know what that gets you unless, you know, you want to be a gigolo for a living, I suppose, right? And so... I ended up wandering around business school and law school and and I saw these guys wearing suits and going in for interviews and I then found out how much you could get paid and I interviewed to get a job as a lawyer and I got a job working for a very small law firm that did exclusively entertainment transactions and by the time I got there, they merged with a much larger law firm called Finley Cumble Wagner Heine under Manley Meyerson and Casey. Is that for real? Yes. I used to love saying that. Finley Cumble Wagner, Heine Underberg, Manley Meyerson, and Casey. That's and a big stationery. It was a it was a law. Well, it was a law firm that was made up. It was it was a guy named Marshall Manley had gone around at that time, basically buying up other law firms, right? And the model was just you know you had to just feed the beast. So he, he, there were I think by the time I left there were six hundred law firms. I left I left a year later. There were six hundred lawyers, right? Um, I got a job from a friend of a friend when I was in law school. I worked for. Um, uh, Professor Nimmer, who who was the leading copyright expert in the world at the time, um, and you know, on a work study program, and then he got me a job at Capitol Records, and I worked at Capitol Records for a guy named Vic Rappaport, who was a music lawyer, but who was the head of business affairs for Capitol, and they were starting a new division called PMI, which is called Picture Music International, and I was a stumble bum. I did not make any plans. I just, it was like, here's a job. I interviewed. If I got it, that was what I was now doing, and so. I worked almost full-time my first year in law school at Capitol Records while I was in law school, which was a real taboo. You weren't supposed to do that. They didn't really want you to have a job your first year of law school, but I needed the money, and so that's what I did. You know, And I worked at Capitol Records, and then they started this company called Picture Music International, which was one of the first music video production companies. They managed directors. Largely, these were directors that came out of the commercial industries, you know, advertising industry, and they were creating these new short form films called music videos and they managed the directors. And so they also would produce those directors content, sort of like what radical media does now with, you know, with their director clients. Anyway. So, um, I worked for him. I worked there and we were doing things that nobody had ever done before. So I actually was, these were like matters of first impression. So I was, we were, we were taking concerts, filming them, the, the best one, the one I always remember is the Tubes live at Budokan, right, in San Francisco, right? So it was a Tubes concert. Do you remember the Tubes? Not that old, Ken. Sorry. I apologize. <laughs> um, um, but the Tubes live at Budokan. And then what I had to do was I had to craft 
a new kind of contract covering music video distribution. We were we were selling these on video cassettes in record stores, right? Those so these were called long form videos, right? I remember those. Yeah, so these long form videos, <laughs> and it was like you know there wasn't that much out there, so there were shelf there was shelf space, and and so we were doing that, and. Um, there were no pre-existing rules or contracts or anything for any of this stuff. So Vic was basically inventing the forms and I was making the phone calls, making changes, negotiating with lawyers, and he was overseeing it and was an extremely, he was a very benevolent guy, really lovely. And he, he taught me how to be a lawyer. I didn't learn it in law school. My dad but, used but to in make a way, that, taught so. you how to be a lawyer with an entrepreneurial kind of, like you're so entrepreneurial and even with your clients, you've, and like even when we talk, you've always got this sort of entrepreneurial thing going on. Do you yeah, think that's why? Because you kind no. of didn't learn in a traditional way. You learned in a in real life kind of. Yeah, but I was a street urchin. You know, like I said, I, worked, I had a job when I was twelve. I was shining shoes at a barber shop in Tarzana when I was twelve years old because I didn't want to ask for an allowance. You know, it was just. You know, there was there was this kind of. Well, then the answer that was is the yes, drug. not no. The answer is yes because you always had to. Yeah, make but Vic Rapport didn't teach me to be an entrepreneur. I was, you, you know, I was way. in survival mode yeah. and always wanted to, I'd never wanted to be a financial burden on anyone. Yeah. So that was just what drove me. And that's why I became entrepreneurial. I was very, you know, I became very much driven by that. You back businesses, you're, you're a, a, an investor in a multitude of businesses and an advisor. We Is write, that... Yeah, we write small checks, but we like to invest early. We like to do seed and pre-seed and angel investing. We, we like founders, right? We like to invest in people and then it also helps if they have a good idea. We do. And what we do is we support founders. We like to incubate things. We like to advise. So we either advise or consult or are passive investors in probably, at this point, over 200 companies. That's we're certainly, amazing. Yeah, we're certainly on 200 cap tables. What, I'm embarrassed what, what to What I love about your, the way you've in your <laughs> life want, is that you're... Anyway, please don't contact me to, to <laughs> That's invest. enough. No yeah, more than 200. We, I, I didn't say we were good at it. <laughs> but what I love about the way you work your life is that you have this amazing sort of energetic commitment to helping people set up business and you're I've seen you I've seen you in the room with some of these founders and you've got always advice and you're so generous with your connections and oh you must meet this person you must meet that person and then the other half you've got this like triple a list names that you're representing who have grown as you said often through the years with you so you've got this really nice contrast of massive names filling massive stadiums or headlining massive movies and then the small stuff as well do you think like, how did you even get to do both of those things what made you do both of those things it's funny that you say that so in the mid 90s in the advent of file sharing right because I had a fascination with copyright and experience in copyright law, I was an early advisor to a company called mp3.com and then Napster. And, you know, we, I had this epiphany for me. It probably doesn't qualify as a real epiphany. It was just, it, it took, it hit me over the head. And that was this idea that what is the difference between a baby band or a screenwriter, or a film producer, or an inventor, right? In other words, what's the difference between a founder and a producer? They all need the same thing. They need financing. They need distribution. They need management, and they need marketing. You know, as a young music lawyer, 
you know, I skipped a step between the law for the first law firm and then Disney and then and then this. But when I left Disney, I went to work at a small law firm that represented exclusively talent, and I started their music practice because I had been very active. I'd done film and television production legal, but I'd also done a lot of music. And I became the last word on music when I was at Disney. And so when I left, I was I I was experienced way beyond my years between what I did at Capital as in law school and then working at Disney as a music lawyer, which is the capital thing was how I got the job at Disney. And then and then I became the music lawyer there. And so Disney is an extraordinary place for a music lawyer because they had the world's largest children's record company, the largest children's music publishing company. They had five full-time marching bands and a unique contract with the musicians union. And I got there and they had almost nothing in production, right? When I arrived, you know, the folks from Paramount Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner, Rich Frank, David Hoberman, you know, Ricardo Mestres, um, Bill McCannay, all those people that had built this empire at Paramount with Barry Diller, post Bob Evans, but, you know, with Barry Diller, they'd had a string of success and they were these really successful guys new and they went into Disney. It was like they could write their own rule. Disney owned all their stuff and they were still a major distributor because of the animated features that they would put out twice a year. They, they had a distribution system that was as powerful as any of the others, even though they didn't make new movies very much, right? They'd made Splash. So I arrived and was the first time they'd ever had a music lawyer at the company. And so there was an opportunity to invent new stuff. And so I got, I got to hire outside lawyers, some very talented outside lawyers, who helped me create a whole new set of forms. And because of my experience at Capital, there were all kinds of new stuff that was happening that needed to be addressed in the forms. And the old forms didn't work as well for what we were trying to build. And it was a fantastic place to be, to be the last word on music for the world's largest consumer products division to studio, the the only studio that owned, you know, at that time, that owned more than one theme park, right? The only uh, studio that had this enormous catalog of perennial hits in their animated library, none of which had ever been put on video, right? All the other studios had, were putting out their catalog on video and Disney had resisted doing it. When they ultimately did it, they changed the model forever. They priced it for sell-through at $129 or $99 and they priced it for rental, you know? And so they then started playing with the pricing models and the elasticity models and they, the average person that owned a Disney film, like people bought videos of movies, but the average person that bought a Disney film bought something like six or seven or eight. I mean, it was crazy. And so Disney just completely We were that family. Yeah. We were that family, Everybody right? was. How did you get your first client? So when I was at Disney, um, I was always working, typically I was the production lawyer or the, or the music lawyer on overseeing all the films and all the television production. But in particular, I was working on the Chris Columbus movies, the... Barry Levinson movies, the Martin Scorsese movies, the movies where the directors were very music intensive. Um, they understood music, they knew how to use music, and they had adventurous ideas about what to do with music. And that was the most fun. I actually got to work with the director and I actually got to work with the music supervisor. And I got to know them. And um, I worked on a movie called Tin Men, which was a Barry Levinson movie with um, Richard Dreyfuss and set in Baltimore. It was one of the Baltimore movies. And, you know, he had done Good Morning Vietnam. And for Good Morning Vietnam, I had to clear 
no joke, every single song that charted during the Vietnam War and or before, um, meant, which meant we had to go and make blanket deals with all the music publishers and all the record labels. And, and the reason was because Barry Levinson had final cut. He was that important as a writer-director. So he had final cut on the movie. And so he was going to turn in the movie with whatever music he used. And because Robin Williams was going to improvise so much, he was going to put in whatever music made sense and worked with, you know, if Robin Williams called out a title and they wanted that scene in the movie, that song was going to be in the background, whether we cleared it or not. So we had to clear it. So we had to pre-clear everything. And it was really something no one had ever tried to do before. And it was a real task. And we did it generally. I'm sure there were plenty of exceptions, but we, we got as broad a coverage as we could and we cleared everything. And there were something on the order of, I mean, there were well over a hundred songs in that movie, right? So on Tin Men, he said, oh, I'm going to do something much easier. And what he did was he actually commissioned the Fine Young Cannibals to score the movie with their songs. So it really isn't much of a score, an instrumental score. There really is a score made up of instrumental portions from the songs that they also perform in the film. And it's, there's actually a couple of scenes where they're actually on camera performing. It's kind of, you know, it's almost surreal. It's not, it's not it doesn't make sense. You're not in a, you're not in a bar. You're not, right. But anyway, it was brilliant. And those songs worked, even though it was set in the fifties and they were a band, you know, they were, they came out of the, you know, um, English beat, right? General public, find your cannibals. Fine Young Cannibals, for the, the point reason I'm telling the story is that the manager for Fine Young Cannibals is a guy named Tony Myland, who um, sadly passed away, but was really brilliant in his own right. And he hated me because I made this deal, the Fine Young Cannibals, that allowed Disney to acquire ownership of those songs that were in Tin Men because Disney would never commission a song for a movie that they didn't own, a score song. If they were going to score the movie, then we owned the score. And so Disney owns Good Thing and Disney owns She Drives Me Crazy. Those two songs were on the most successful album of the 90s, Raw and the, the, Raw and the Cooked. That was the biggest selling album of the 1990s. So Tony Milan really didn't like me because I, he didn't want to lose the opportunity. The band didn't want to lose the opportunity. They wanted to work with Barry Levinson. Tony was brilliant and knew how important that could be for their career. And it was. And you know, and he was really not happy with that deal. And when I left Disney, he might have been the very first person that called me on the phone really? and said, I'm sending you a client. And I said, who? He said, fine young cannibals. <laughs> and by the way, if you can figure out how to get those songs back from Disney, <laughs> you know, then we'll, then we won't, we won't fire you. Um, and he also sent me my very first client, Herbie Hancock, who is to this day, my client and a dear friend and, um, you know, and Herbie, you know, who is, I mean, he won album of the year 30 years apart, right? Amazing. And Herbie Hancock is the nicest, loveliest, kindest humanist I've ever had the privilege to know. And he and his wife and my wife and I have traveled together and he is the only client that showed up at my father's funeral. And he stayed till the end with his whole family and and his manager. And, and they just, he's just a very good person in, a, in, in, in addition to being in many ways one of the most talented people 
I've ever That's met. so lovely. But I think yeah. you can't underestimate that he probably turned up because you also are one of the kindest people and probably go beyond the pale if my experience is anything to go by. Yeah, we have to hold on to the good people. They make the rest of it easier to deal with, right? So on to the not-so-good people. Please. What is the worst meeting you've ever been to? Do I have to drop names? I don't want to drop names. Up to you. I, You're I, the I've lawyer. Already, you know what Clint you can Eastwood do. Clint Eastwood told me never to drop names. <laughs> Very good. Um, but but uh, the worst meeting I ever went to, I mean, truth is, the worst things that have ever happened to me have been because I said something or did something that I didn't need to say, I didn't need to do. And generally speaking, that's because I let my ego drive my impulsive behavior and it and it backfired, right? And so I've had many meetings that I would love to take back, right? Um, I, I do have good instincts and when I trust my instincts, I make good decisions. And when I doubt my instincts or I am distracted or I am not hearing, even when I'm listening, I say and do things that I regret. And I have spent most of my adult life trying to figure out how to be a better listener, particularly to the women in my life. I have two daughters and a wife that I've been married to since college. Well, that I started dating in college and that I've been married to since law school. And I feel very fortunate that, that they aren't more damaged by my behavior than they are um, because my wife is really a saint and, and she is Ken. Yeah. No, no. I mean, you know, and, and you know, I didn't, I didn't, we got, we got together so young that I didn't know. Right. I didn't know how special she was, you know, until we'd dated on and off for five years and broken up and gotten back together and broken up and got back together that I, I realized that how lucky I was to have met her and, you know, how lucky I was that she's so tolerant. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I have spent a great deal of my adult life not just learning how to listen to others, but, you know, to convince my daughters in particular that I hear them. That's a lovely answer. Ken, question number three for you. Who is the best person that you have met in real life, in real life, because it's important that you have that vibe with them in the room. Is there one person that you can say, wow, he was, she was, they were the best person? Change something for you. I'm going to give you a very controversial answer to this question. Excellent. Okay. I think Will Smith is the best person I've ever had the honor to meet. And I met him as a teenager and have worked with him ever since through a lot of different iterations of his professional arrangements through two wives and three kids and um, have spent time with them socially but professionally, you know, and, and I don't delude myself into thinking that my clients are my friends. Right? They don't need friends. They need a lawyer or they need a, an advisor or they need, you know, a, a fixer. You know, I mean, my clients, 
I typically get clients in a different way than most people that do what I do. I get clients referred to me typically because they have a problem they need to solve and they don't know how to solve it or they don't know who to ask. And someone refers them to me because, as I said earlier, I like to fix things. You know, I was unsuccessful at fixing my parents' marriage, I'm sure. And so, you know, I imagine that that's why, at least this is the theory I've evolved in therapy, right, is that, you know, I I have spent my life trying to, I'm attracted to complicated problems and I like to fix those problems and I've had mixed results. But in any event, you know, when I met Will Smith, he was half of DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. And I think by some accounts was at the end of a recording career and wanted to explore the possibility of being an actor, but had resisted all of the normal entrees because, you know, he was being offered parts that his advisor and friend, James Lasseter, you know, had, I think, convinced him were risky. It was a, it was a strange time in the music business. You know, they, they had won the first, DJ and Fresh Prince had won the first Grammy for rap music. But if you'll recall, there was a whole boycott around that because the Grammys didn't broadcast the rap category. And so he was somewhat of a, you know, too clean. His lyrics were too clean, you know, or he was too down the middle, whatever, whatever it was, he, he towed the line between being recording artist and a novelty artist and a pop artist. And it just wasn't, you know, for whatever reason, the world hadn't evolved to the point where they knew where to put him. I met him because a woman named Deborah Hill called me up on the phone, who was a producer on the lot, who had been the producer of the Chris Columbus movie I worked on, um, Adventures in Babysitting, and um, and then also Heartbreak Hotel. And she and I were friendly, called me on the phone and said, I'm stealing an idea of yours. And I said, what idea is that? And she said, I want DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince to sing a rap version of Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> and I said, that was not my idea. That was Benny and Medina's <laughs> idea for a project that I was working on with a, a a songwriter named B.A. Robertson, who was a songwriter producer who wrote Mike and the Mechanics' big hit, The, the Living Years. And B.A. and I had become friendly, and he had this fabulous concept called uh, Simply Mad About the Mouse. And the idea, and it ultimately came out, but after I left Disney, and the, I was working on the project with him, and the idea was to do pop versions of classic Disney songs. And so he'd done a bunch of demos of like, you know, um, Someday My Prince Will Come, in 4-4 four, four time and you know he'd, he'd taken a lot of different songs and sort of showed how they could be rearranged as popular music. I think it was a somewhat novel idea at the time and the idea was to have pop artists then cover those songs. And so one of the ideas which came from Benny Medina in a meeting with BA was this idea like, well, you should have DJ Jazz and Fresh Prince do a cover of Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And so I, I said that wasn't my idea and Deborah said, Okay, whatever. I want, <laughs> I, 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 I can't get them to return my call. And I said, who? And she said, their manager. And I said, Lior Cohen? Russell Simmons and Lior Cohen were managers at that time. Def Jam was a management company, and they managed Run DMC, and they managed Heavy D and the Boys, I think, and maybe Big Daddy Kane, and DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. So I called Lior on the phone because we were friendly, and I had met Will at a taping of the Arsenio Hall show when Quincy Jones was on with a client of ours at the time, Tevin Campbell, forming a song from Back on the Block. Will was sitting right in front of me. And after the show, we went backstage and Lior introduced me to Will. Coincidentally, not 
not, I mean, this, this call, everything good that's ever happened to me has felt like a coincidence. And so only a couple of weeks earlier, I had met Will with Leo. And so I called Leo on the phone and I said, you know, why aren't you calling Deborah Hill back? She's a big time producer. She produced all the John Carpenter movies and, you know, she was a, she was a big deal. And he said, it's a dumb idea. She wants them to do a song <laughs> for a TV special about Disneyland, right? I'm dealing with the fact that these guys can't get arrested, right? <laughs> and she wants to make it worse. And I said, well, John Landis is directing it because I don't know if you recall, but John Landis at the time was having a tough time getting work as a director because of the tragedy on the set of Twilight Zone. And so John Landis, a real director, is directing it. You know, people want him to act. Here's an opportunity to get him in front of the camera. And he said, okay, fine, you make the deal. I said, well, he doesn't have a lawyer, right? And he said, they've got financial problems. I'm not positive that their lawyer is returning their calls right now. <laughs> and I said, well, can I meet him? And he said, sure, when he comes out to record it, you'll meet him. And so I met him. And he was the sweetest, most down-to-earth, kindest young man. You know, I was 10 years older than him. I was in my 20s, but I was 10 years older than him. And I just left Disney, and I had no clients except for Fine Young Cannibals and Herbie Hancock, but I had very little to do. And, you know, at that time, if you had a heartbeat and aspirations, I would consider you as a client. <laughs> um, and so I went downtown and I met him and he walked into breakfast at this terrible flea bag hotel that I guess Disney put him up in. I have no idea. But he slapped, he slapped a stack of screenplays on the table and said, I haven't read any of these. It was literally like 10. I don't know how he traveled with them. It was like 10 <laughs> scripts, right? And he said, I haven't read any of these, but I'm thinking about being an actor. And Lior says, you can help me. Nice. And I said, okay. And I had worked at a studio. And so I knew people. And so I started making phone calls and I started, you know, I had a copy of the video cassette of Parents Just Don't Understand. And he's so charismatic. He just jumps off camera. And at the taping of the, the supercalifragilistic bit at the taping, John Landis said, you work with him? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you mind if I call my agent about him? Right? And I said, what do you mean? He said, Cameron loves this kid. Do you care? Do you mind if I call his uh, you know, my agent? And I said, no, honestly, I had no idea. You know, I hadn't worked in the private sector. I'd worked at Disney, you know? And so I didn't know what, what to do or how to do it, but I knew it was an opportunity. And so I called a guy named Grant Rosenberg, who was at that time running Lee Rich's company at Warner Brothers, but he had been the president of television when I was at Disney, and he was a friend of mine. And I called him up and I said, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what to do. He's got an offer at Fox to host literally a rap variety show. And I don't think that's a good idea. And I, and I said, and I'm worried that if he stars in something and it fails, that's the end of his career. I don't think he can, he, he's never acted. I don't think he can carry something. So I need to figure out a way to surround him with talent so that he can be, because he will stand out. If it's successful and he doesn't have to carry it, he will get good notices because he is so charismatic. And he said, yeah, so, you know, we'll put him under a hold deal. And he, he, and he called me back and he said, I need to tell you that I've been told by the studio that they'll put him under a hold deal. It wasn't much money, but the hold deal is where they basically put you, take you off the market for a period of time, often for very little money. But the idea is that they have to, you know, come up with something within that period of time. And if they do, then you make a deal with them. And if you don't, you wait till the deal expires or you try to get out of the deal and try to go somewhere else. So he said, well, we'll put him under a whole, whole deal and develop a show for him, right? And Lee Rich had produced Dallas. He called me and said, we'll put him under a whole deal, but uh, the studio wants us to attach George Jackson and Doug McHenry. 
who had just produced a big hit film called New Jack City and had an overall deal at Warner's, and they were the quote-unquote black producers on the lot. And so if you're going to produce a black show, then you need to attach to black producers, right? Which was, I think, you know, politically sensitive, you know, politically correct. And 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 they had had a big success. And so he said, so we're, we're going to work with George and Doug, and they're going to produce the movie with us. And I said, okay, you know, I'm looking forward to getting an offer. In the meantime, I get a phone call from a guy named Jeff Pollock, who I had gone to junior high school with. And Jeff Pollock was the person who actually had introduced me to Benny Medina. They were friends since high school. Benny Medina had lived in South Central Los Angeles and went to an art center and met a guy that was a donor who lived in Beverly Hills. This is important. Walked up to this guy. He said, you're rich. Why don't you let me come live with you? <laughs> yeah, he lived in a broken home and he had, you know, and, and he was he was living on the streets at, wow. or or in a in very difficult circumstances and was worried about being in a gang and, you know, all sorts of things that, you know, made him nervous and, and looking for opportunity. He had ambition. And so uh, to his credit, this guy who was a famous film, who was actually a famous film composer and and um, and had his own orchestra, actually, that that scored films and that sort of thing. Anyway. He says, okay, I'll tell you what, you have to keep a job, you have to keep your grades up, you can live in the apartment above our garage, and you can attend Beverly Hills High School. Benny went on to be the student body president at Beverly Hills High School, the captain of the football team. He, he met the Gordy kids, Barry Gordy's children, and he ended up getting, he ended up being signed to Motown Records as part of a recording artist, I think called Apollo. And then he ended up working at Motown as a creative executive. And then he got the job as head of black music at Warner Brothers, working for Mo Austin and Murray Gitlin and Lenny Warnaker. And he was their head of black music. And my friend Jeff Pollack had introduced us and Benny had me negotiate his employment agreement. And part of the deal was I had carved out film and television, saying if he wanted to produce film or TV, he could do that. They were very eager to make a deal with him. They were excited about having him work there. And Mo Austin said, okay, but the deal is he can produce film and TV, but he, but only if he produces it here. Meaning if he produces it for Warner Brothers, because the studio and the record label were part of the same company at the time. If he produces it for Warner Brothers, he can produce film and TV. Hope this isn't boring you. So Jeff Pollock calls me up on the phone. Jeff was going to partner with him, was going to be his producer on those things, right? Because Benny had a full-time job. So Jeff, his partner, who he'd known since high school, was going to do, Jeff and I knew each other since junior high school. Jeff calls me up on the phone and says, Benny and I have this great idea. And I said, what is it? And he said, we want to produce a black remake of The Fugitive, which was a CBS series from when we were kids, right? And I said, okay, go on. And he said, no, that's the idea. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you bring to the party? <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? I said, are you going to write it? He said, maybe. I don't know. I've never written television. I said, okay, television is not like the movie business. You can't, this I knew, you can't sell an idea in television because the whole point of television is keeping the series on the air. It's not profitable if it's not a successful series. And so it's a, it's a writer's medium. It's really all about the showrunner and the writing staff. Concept has to be one, you know, they, they have a saying in television, premises, premises. Nobody cares about the idea. They care about who is the star, who is the showrunner, what gives it longevity, what what makes it what makes it worth watching, who are you rooting for? All of that, right? And so I said, you don't own the rights. You have 
CBS owns the rights. You got to go get the rights. Why would they give you the rights? You guys have never produced anything. And I said, but Benny might know something. Like, I didn't know how to help them. I said to him, foolishly, perhaps, I said, for example, I'm working with a guy named Will Smith. He's half of a, of, a, of a recording artist named DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. And he's got a lot of charisma and he's got a following. And, you know, I'm working with Warner Brothers on figuring out how to develop a show for him. And Jeff said, that's great. How do we get our show made? I said, well, for example, if you had, you know, Danny Glover wanted to do a remake of The Fugitive, then, you know, and you were, and he was attached to the project, then you could go to CBS and say, Danny Glover and Benny and I want to make this show, you know? And he said, well, how does, you know, um, you know, how does Bernie Brillstein produce all these shows? I said, Bernie Brillstein doesn't produce the TV shows. Bernie Brillstein manages the star of the show and he gets paid as a producer and he gets a producer credit in lieu of getting paid a management commission. That's how it works. He's not actually producing the movies. He's got clients that are starring in the, in the TV series and in the movies. And I said, so this Danny Glover idea is a good idea, right? And so he said, yeah, can you introduce us to Danny Glover? I said, I don't know Danny Glover. <laughs> right? And I said, and I don't know why but Glover or his management would want him doing a TV series and let alone with you. He said, all right, well, can you help us try to get to Danny Glover? And I said, this is the dumbest conversation I've ever had. What is like? And I said, this Will Smith kid, he's managed by Lior Cohen. I'm, I imagine that if Benny Medina called Lior Cohen on the phone and said, I want to produce a TV series or a movie with Will Smith, that Lior would say, yes, sir, Mr. Medina and would set up a meeting for you. So they did. Benny called me up like five minutes later and said, should I call Will? And I said, do you know Will? He said, I've met him. And he met him at the same Arsenio Hall taping that I went to, right? That same episode. And I said, no, you should call Lior and do what I just told Jeff. And he said, okay. Anyway, they got a meeting with Will. And Will calls me up on the phone and says, I like those guys. I want to work with those guys. They were friends of mine. So I'm not going to like say, you can't work with those guys. <laughs> you know? I said, okay. That was the same time that Grant Rosenberg had called me and told me that, you know, the studio had attached two more producers to it. Now you had four non-writing executive producers and Will wanted to bring two more in. So you have six non-writing executive producers and you have to hire a showrunner and that guy gets, has to get paid and Will has to get paid. And I said to Benny, I said, this isn't going to work. This show will never get made. And so he says, well, what about Quincy Jones? And I said, well, what about Quincy Jones? He said, well, we just made a big overall deal with Quincy Jones. I'm, I'm actually running his record label, and he's going to produce film and TV for Warner Brothers. And I said, okay, we'll call Quincy and see if he wants to put him under a whole deal. And so he calls Quincy Jones, and the way it was reported back to me was that Quincy said, thank God you called. I have a meeting tomorrow with Brandon Tartikoff at, tomorrow, and I've got nothing to pitch. Why don't you guys come with me? Wow. And, Kismet. Well, I told you, everything good that ever happened to me at this time felt like a coincidence. So Timing couldn't have been better. They stay up all night writing a concept for a TV series based loosely on Benny's life, the one I just told you about, about a kid from the inner city who went to live in Beverly Hills and... The rest is history. Right. You know, Benny manages J-Lo and is a legend in the business at this point. And so Quincy Jones takes them to this meeting. They read their idea off index cards. And I imagine Brandon didn't even listen to the pitch, but he watched the music video and said, I'll test him. And so they flew him out for a screen test. The only day that Will was available to come out was a day off during his tour. DJ Jazz and Jeff and the Fresh Prince were opening for Heavy D and the Boys on tour. 
And so they flew out to Los Angeles on March 14th, 1980, which was the end of what at that time was referred to as pilot season because the TV business was very, it was a network driven business at that time. TV business was very different. You had literally a season every year where the studios would, you know, develop and then order pilots, order scripts, then order pilots, then make those pilots and then show those pilots to the advertising industry, essentially, and what were called upfronts. And then, then they would put the shows on the air and give them a, a, enough rope. So he orders the pilot and Jeff Pollack calls me up on the phone from the screen test and says, we are here. They're going to test Will. They need him to sign this contract. Now, the part I didn't tell you is that the day before, my wife had had our second baby. And I was in the hospital when he called, in scrubs, right, sleeping, you know. And we had just watched the Billboard Music Awards. Stevie Wonder and Tevin Campbell had just sung uh, Happy Birthday to Quincy Jones because it was Quincy Jones's birthday, March 14th. My daughter was born the day before. And so we watched the show and the phone rings because the show is on tape delay. Everybody was already at Quincy's house for his birthday party and Brandon Tartikoff was there and they had decided to do the screen test that night. And that day, NBC had sent me a test, what's called a test option agreement, right? A test option agreement is like one of these agreements that you sign if you want to be a contestant on America's Got Talent, right? Or you basically have to sign it before they'll tell you whether or not you're going to be on the show. This is the same thing. Test option deal is what you do with an actor so that the actor has no leverage. You won't give him a screen test unless he signs the agreement. And then if he gets the job, that's the deal. And so I said to Jeff, I said, no, no, no. I don't have to look at the contract yet. They know that my wife just had a baby and I'm in the hospital. And you remember I mentioned earlier that I didn't want to be that dad, right? And he said, well, if you don't come up here, I'm going to tell him to sign it. So I said, Jeff, you can't do that. He said, well, I'm going to. And, you know, I was tempted at that time to say, you're not even in this if it wasn't for me. Like, what is wrong with you? Right? And so I said, I spoke to the NBC lawyers. They said, he, they said that they'll wait to tell us whether, he, whether the test was successful until after he signs the contract. But I haven't even had a chance to read it or negotiate it or anything. So he says, you need to get up here. Otherwise, I'm telling him he's signing the contract. And he hangs up on me. Nice. Now, this is 1990. So this is pre-iPhone. So he called me from a landline to a landline. And so I had no way of getting him back. He was at Quincy Jones's house. I don't know the number. And, I, and he's at a party. And so I get in the car, go up to Quincy's house. They're having a party. And as I'm approaching the house, a classmate of mine from law school named Leslie Lurie, who worked for Brandon, is walking toward me down the middle of the street. She had graduated from law school and she hadn't practiced law. She went to work for a judge and then she went into the entertainment business. And she was, I think at that time already, head of comedy development for um, NBC. So she's walking toward the car and I roll my window down to say hello. And she says, oh my God, he was amazing. We're ordering the pilot tomorrow morning. Not knowing that he hasn't signed his screen test agreement. Great stuff. Say, excuse me, his test option agreement. So I was up till three in the morning sitting in the back of a limousine parked in front of Quincy Jones's house, <laughs> negotiating a test option agreement with a very tired lawyer who represented Quincy, trying to figure out why I think I have any leverage. Three in the morning, Quincy came out to sign the deal. And he was probably a little bit tipsy, <laughs> right? Because it was his birthday party. And he said to me, I heard you had a baby. And I said, yeah. And he said, boy or a girl? And I said, girl. 
and he's and he got this really dreamy look in his eyes and he looks up in the sky and he's and this is really not politically correct but almost nothing i've said is but he looks up in the sky and gets this really dreamy look in his eyes and he's clearly not he's clearly intoxicated and he says i got five girls they'll suck you dry man <laughs> <laughs> no joke anyway so he signs the contract and then I drive to the Four Seasons Hotel where he and Benny Medina are wide awake, you know, talking about everything in their room and have him sign the contract. And I'm sure it was the best first time actor deal for a TV series development ever. And there was no, sh we didn't have a showrunner because it was too late in the pilot season and they were all spoken for. I spoke to a guy named Sam Haskell at William Morris. I said, I'm trying to help, we need to find a showrunner because we've got a pilot order, but no showrunner. He says, sorry, I can't help you. I said, you know, this guy's a client of yours because William Morris, a woman named Kara Lewis was an agent at William Morris who, oh, who, who represented DJ Jazz at the Fresh Prince. So I figured William Morris could help us. And Sam Haskell was the best packaging agent in the TV business. He represents all the big showrunners, especially in comedy, and that he could help. He said, I wish I could, Ken, I can't help you. I, I had nobody. You have to remember, I didn't know what I was doing, right? You haven't done too badly just in this story you. for saying no, I know, that you didn't know saying, what you were doing. But like I said, everything just kind of happened to me. I didn't, you know, I... You I mean, this me was like one of the most pivotal cultural moments of, of entertainment and popular culture and set Will on a path that was an extraordinary path. And you've still been on that journey with him, right? So that's so your So this is the answer, this is the long answer to your question. He is the nicest, kindest, most generous person I've ever worked with. He never so much as raised his voice, to my knowledge, in the 32 years I've worked with him. You asked a question, and, and that is the answer. He is so good and so kind and so generous and so thoughtful, right? And really always has been, right? And his I called his mother not too long ago, and she said, you know, he's a perfect baby. It's like, I had three kids. He never gave me one reason to complain his whole life, right? So it's just, it's a funny world. You were so generous in involved me in the project when Will and Jaden and the Smith family were launching Just Water and he had very quietly supported Jaden in his effort to make a difference in the world and to have this incredible proposition where sustainable packaging and, and, and actually having something that was planet positive as a water brand and that brand was sold very quietly under the radar and very successfully for some years before the Smith family actually said actually we we've been quietly involved and you helped strategize that and one of the best moments of of my life came was when you trusted me enough to introduce me to the team and that we worked on some of the narrative around Just Water and then we went together with Will to the Can Lions and I can say that first of all that was an extraordinary experience for someone like me totally down to you being so generous with your connections, but I wasn't also... generous at all. I wasn't generous at all. I don't put friends or clients or ideally anyone in business with or in confidence with anyone I don't trust. And I and and you know, you know, I think everything is about trust. That is true. And I think I would just concur that the professionalism of Will and the generosity and incredible levels of courtesy of the whole team that was around him 
with all of the people that we've worked with over the years together and the people that I've worked with, you know, in my own in my own right, was off the scale on the top of the top. I mean, I've never worked with such a professional, elegant, polite team. And he was extraordinary and humble and went out of his way to be wonderful to everyone that we met there. And it's still very memorable for everyone that was in that he situation. Says thank right? you. He says thank you and hello and acknowledges exactly. every person he comes into contact with and lives by a credo, which is he wants everyone that he comes into contact with to be better off as a result. Yeah. Whatever, however that manifests. Well, that itself. was the story he told that about his grandmother, like that he yeah. said that he wanted to leave the room better than when he walked in. And we, we saw that. So I think it's an amazing history. You, you have to write a book because your stories and the people that you've met and the things you've seen with these incredible names who've been pivotal for popular culture and for how we've experienced entertainment, it's, it's amazing. Vision of truth. Can you see the future? Can you change the future now? You have this really interesting mix of having so much heritage and so much history, but you're also a very future forecast. You love technology. You're always looking for tomorrow, solutions for tomorrow. I'm curious. What do you think? What do you feel with that natural curiosity? You know, this is a generation who's asking more questions and needs more answers and are pushing us to be better for our tomorrow. What's what's your vision of, of, of what's, what's ahead of us and what's the truth for us for to for tomorrow in terms of any of these areas that you've touched on, entertainment or culture or our sort of planet contribution, which is at the forefront of our brains right now? I feel like we're in the third act of an action adventure movie. <laughs> I do think for some bizarre reason, everything feels like it is coming to that climax. One way or another, it all feels like it's happening to us or that we are somehow headlong running into a destination and hopefully there'll be a sequel. But, you know, a few years ago, there was an article in, I believe, the New York Times Magazine by the guy who started Greenpeace, an English guy who had started Greenpeace. And he wrote a, an article for the New York Times Magazine about how he was quitting the environmental movement. He was done. And his reasoning was that he believed at that time, and this is already like, I think it's like seven or eight years ago, it might be longer, but he believed that it was too late. But I do remember reading it and, and being moved by the piece because he believed that we had, we had gone too far and gone too long and it was, we were past the Rubicon. And he said that he believed that the environmental movement's mistake, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but my recollection of the article was that he believed that the environmental movement's mistake was giving people false hope. He thinks that people who can make a difference go out and buy Tom's shoes. They drive a Prius, <laughs> right? They do things that give them the semblance of global citizenship, the semblance of responsibility. But they're really just pacifying their own conscience because they really, and all of us are really narcissists. And his point is we have to be selfless if we want to solve big problems and it's not happening. And the reason it's not happening is because everybody assumes that somebody else is dealing with it for them. And I've given people the impression that I'm dealing with it for them essentially. And so I need to give people less 
hope because the only thing that's going to get people off their ass is if they believe me when I tell them it may be too late. And I believe it probably is because once they feel that their lives are truly at stake, maybe they will do the kinds of things that will make a difference. And to, your, to answer your question, I believe that we are seeing miraculous technologies solving extraordinarily challenging problems, right? You know, California has a huge water problem, but they're talking about building an enormous desalination plant that will take seawater and turn it into potable water on a massive scale. And maybe we don't have to destroy the aquifers. Maybe we don't have to destroy the Colorado River. Maybe we don't have to destroy Mono Lake, right? Maybe these things can actually be salvaged before it is too late, right? And it may in fact be too late. And if it's too late and the script is written and, and it's all coming to a crash, okay, that's, that's unfortunate. But it, if it is too late, it is too late. And I'm a realist. I'm not a, I'm not a cockeyed optimist and I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. And so I don't have enough information to know whether it's too late, but I'm seeing signs that it might be, you know, 100 year floods and storms and, you know, and crises and fires and things that, that we were told could happen. It's no longer it's no longer something off in the distance. It's actually happening. It's here, yeah. Yeah, and and we don't, we're not smart enough. We don't have enough data to actually model it confidently, right? Because unfortunately, the one truth is that they never get the weather right. You know, they just don't. We're here in London. It was gonna, we were gonna have thunderstorms yesterday. We didn't. <laughs> thunderstorms today. We haven't. <laughs> right? You know, I mean. For whatever reason, it's the, the the earth is a very complicated thing. And as George Carlin used to say, you know, you're not saving the planet. You're saving yourself. The planet's going to be just fine. It's going to shake us off, I believe he said, like a bad case of the fleas, right? But if we really want to save our children and our grandchildren and our, and our you know, progeny, then we need to be kinder to each other. And we need to be – this is the part that we talked about earlier about what what – Freedom comes with responsibility, and we've just sort of redefined the responsibility part to serve our own needs. And as a result, we are selfish, self-centered, narcissistic, unkind, you know, and dishonest, right? This, this dishonesty thing is important because we're lying to ourselves. I think that the Gen Z kind of narrative for questioning us, pushing us, making companies more accountable... You know, you talked about trust, the trust data that we found where people are desperate. They tell us in this data that they are desperate for companies to step up in the space that governments cannot fill and, and step into action that NGOs cannot fulfill. Yes. But we're not there yet, right? But we hope, I hope that you're kind of, if this is the, the final part of the movie, that it's one that makes us want to stand up in the theatre and cheer and not kind of just I do sob too. in the chair I do quietly. Too. I, I agree with I agree with you. Touch of Truth. A story that affirms a personal impact on the planet and people because of the truth they shared. Ken, is there a story that confirms for you about a person who's had impact on the planet or impact on people because of a truth that they shared? I started my post-Disney career representing primarily recording artists. 
songwriters, singers. And I have had the privilege of learning the difference. I'm going to answer this in a quick way, but I'm going to answer it in a, in a more generic way, which is I've had the privilege of working with people who move mountains with enormous audiences who think they know them and are, as a result, driven by them. You know, there's an interesting, when you look at the social media statistics, you know, recording artists score way better than actors. Comedians too, but, but recording artists are typically right up at the top of the social media influencers, aside from the people who are just influencers because they're influencers, right? Um, but of the celebrities, of the traditional celebrities, recording artists are always way off the chart. And I think the reason is, and I've said this to a lot of people, I, I, I think the reason is because even if they don't write the songs, right, those songs are written by brilliant songwriters, recording artists, you know, the Diane Warrens of the world, right? There is a confidence in fans that a recording artist would never say a lyric, sing a lyric, that they didn't truly believe, you know? And so as a result, recording artists are much more influential. My, my daughters believed that Boys to Men was singing directly to them, <laughs> you know, and in sync and the Backstreet Boys. And, you know, you know, and, you know, in many cases, they didn't write the songs, but they wouldn't have sung them if they didn't actually believe them. Whereas an actor finds their truth in the parts that they play. So we don't think we know them unless they're Gwyneth Paltrow and they live their lives in public and we really get to know them. But recording artists' gift is their ability to make a difference by inspiring people to not only listen to what they say, but if they are inspired by those words, they believe that they, if they knew each other, mm. they could be friends. Mm. And that is the power of influence. And it kind of always has been. And that is how celebrities and frankly, content will have the ability to change everything. And as everybody has become a content creator, every company has to tell their story and paid advertising is no longer the way it gets done. This is why what you do is so important in my mind, right? And this is kind of how we met in the first place, really, as I said, you know, I've been waiting my whole life to meet you, right? Because because I believe that everyone is driven by the stories that they believe. So if we can give people a better narrative and get to them, we can figure out a way to finance that storytelling and move the needle you know, toward a better world, then that's a good thing. And I think recording artists do well by doing good. I, I've worked with a lot of people who I don't admire and I've worked with a lot of people who I do admire. And the fact is I've, I'm at a point now where I actually have the luxury of being able to only work with people I really do like and really do admire. And, and, and I'm so far, I've gotten pretty good at that. And if I believe in my clients, I can kick in doors for them and sleep at night. You know, That's a really lovely way to end this because you've shown so many stories in this podcast that confirm that you're a person who's got an amazing journey and you've learned at every level you haven't ever stopped learning you still learn I think you're still learning every day you have such an open mind and open heart to learn and you've taken us through so much of what you've done and you're you know you're professional in terms of being a lawyer being a consultant being an advisor 
but you've also got this incredible curiosity and passion for helping people and putting people together. And honestly, Ken, I've seen over and over in, in the years that we've known each other that when you put people together, magic happens and you've constantly made magic happen. We, we, we've heard this story about the Fresh Prince, but I've seen this in small ways and in big ways. And I've been part of the beneficiary of that. So for that, I thank you. I thank you for being my friend. I thank you for being on my, on my podcast. I thank you for your stories. And um, I think this has been quite an amazing, uh, amazing journey, this particular podcast. So thank you. Thank you. I probably regret most of what I shared <laughs> or will, but I do adore you. And thank you very much for, for allowing me to spout off. <laughs> Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper. Follow us at Touch of Truth Pod.